Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. Resilient Cyber is sponsored by Acquia, a cybersecurity service, disabled veteran-owned small business that is passionate about enabling innovation and driving secure digital transformation. Acquia believes in guardrails over roadblocks and security as a business and mission enabler. Learn more at acquia.us. That's A-Q-U-I-A dot U-S. Before we start the episode, we want to give a big thank you to our season four sponsor, Nucleus Security. Meet Nucleus, the only risk-based vulnerability management platform purpose-built for the world's most complex enterprises. Nucleus takes the mountain of vulnerability data that is produced by your security stack and unifies it into one clean dashboard that helps you make sense of your assets and vulnerabilities. With Nucleus, users get a normalized and deduplicated list of vulnerabilities across network devices, cloud, applications, and more. Next, we layer in risk and vulnerability intelligence from sources like Mondiant to help you prioritize the vulnerabilities that matter most. Ready to see how Nucleus can help improve your vulnerability management program? Head to NucleusSec.com today. Thank you for joining the Resilient Cyber Show. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson. Hey, everybody. And today we're joined by Mark Montgomery. Mark, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. We're really excited to chat with you, you know, especially someone new uh, to the career field with not uh, much of a background. No, I'm joking. Mark's background is actually incredible. When me and Nikki were bringing him on, we were like, what the hell do we even ask this guy? He's done so much. He has such an incredible background and so many different uh, unique roles and capacities. Uh, so we're really excited to chat with you, Mark. But for folks that don't know you or haven't seen you anywhere quite yet, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh the, I was a career naval officer. I did about 32 years um, commanding destroyers, destroyer squadron, a carrier strike group. I retired um, in 2017 as a rear admiral and went to work immediately for Senator John McCain. Worked for him for a couple of years till he passed as the policy director on the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, which was incredibly enlightening. Uh, probably got more done in a few months of work there than in 32 years in the Navy in terms of you know, correcting Department of Defense policy or aligning things effectively. Uh, then uh, uh, Senator King, who'd been on the Armed Services Committee, uh, had become chairman of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, along with Representative Mike Gallagher, who was on the House Armed Services Committee and who I'd worked with. And the two of them asked me to run the Cyberspace Solarium Commission for them. And so I did that for um, uh, about uh, three years until we sunsetted the commission about a year ago. And uh, what we did there was, you know, pa pass a bunch of legislate, uh, legislation. I know we'll talk about this in a second. And then uh, we're now running Senator King, Representative Gallagher and I are running a, uh, an NGO that tries to keep working on the cyber solarium issues called Cyber Solarium 2.0. It's housed here at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where I also run their, um, uh, their Cyber Center on Technology and Innovation. And I'm a senior fellow that works a lot in there. Taiwan, uh, Ukraine, and Israel uh, defense issues. 
Yeah, as I mentioned, you have uh, quite quite the background. Uh, you know, one thing I've been wondering, you've made this transition into cybersecurity and you're really articulate on the topic when it comes to cybersecurity and national security and things like that. Um, you know, how was that transition moving from your previous Navy, Navy role, you know, which I imagine uh, as part of a strike group and such wasn't necessarily cyber focused? Uh, how did that transition come about and how, you know, how was that experience for you? Well, that's a great question because I, I didn't mention two of my other jobs as a admiral. One was as head of uh, our deputy director of plans, policy, and U.S. European Command, and then the other was as director of operations in U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. And both those jobs, the the cyber element, either the cyber planning or cyber execution element, came under my you know or people that worked for me. And so, um, as a result, I had to work you know between. 20, you know, 10 and 2017, I was reasonably involved in the evolution of the force employment side of Cyber Command, you know, how we use those forces forward, how we interact with the geographic command commanders. And then I was one of the many, 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 many people disappointed in our inability to actually take our cyber tools and use them to plan and execute missions against an adversary, whether it be Russia or China because of the kind of limitations and challenges. So I was pretty well involved in the defense end of cyber. And then when I was on the Armed Services Committee, um, as Senator McCain, you know, is, he was ill. When people left, we didn't hire rele- replacements because they wouldn't necessarily be kept by the next chairman. So we had to start distributing jobs. And I became the cyber PSM professional staff member for about a year, which was about 11 months longer than I thought when I said I'd do it. Uh, but it turned out to be really educational and the, the kind of people who I worked with later on the Cybersecurity Salarian Commission, I mean, I became extremely uh, knowledgeable through oversight of the kind of things that we would take a look at in the Cyberspace Salarian Commission. And that's one thing about being a, a Hill staffer, particularly on a committee like the Armed Services Committee of the Senator House, is that is that you're, you know, the you, you become extremely, you know, the the Department of Defense and you become very close and you're able to do quite a bit of oversight and learn a lot about the systems and and have good understanding. Yeah, it's, I mean, based on your just incredible experience and and breadth and depth of experience across cybersecurity, you know, usually we ask this question last, but I think it is totally appropriate to ask this up front um, based, you know, based on your experience and sort of where our conversation is going to go. Uh, but what does cyber resiliency mean to you? You know, I'm glad you asked that because uh, and asked it up front, because this is, in fact, if uh, if you saw the release, uh, like I said, the, in the last 24 hours or so of, um, of the, the select committee on the Chinese Communist Party, they had 10 things for Taiwan, and, and one of them is to improve cyber resiliency. And, and, and I think it comes from a recommendation I gave them during testimony about three weeks ago. Uh, I gave them, like I called it a baker's dozen, like 13 recommendations, a lot of more about munitions or deployment cycles or training with the Taiwan forces. But then a big chunk, the last third, were about cyber, and they, and they, and they were exactly on this issue of cyber resilience. So to me, cyber resilience is about three things. It's about your ability to maintain. This is in a national security mode, and that's where I come from. It's about your ability to maintain your uh, to, to conduct military mobility. In other words, can I move my forces, my supplies, my equipment, my fuel, my ammo from 
point A to point B to carry out the national security demand. So it's about your rail systems, your highway system, your ports, your air control systems. And, and look, the military is fantastic. They have this thing called mission assurance where they go study a base and they're like, hey, does the base have two power generators? Yes. Does the base have two independent water supplies? Yes. Does the base have this? Does the base have that? Have we Kevlar'd the electrical sub-power station so someone can't shoot it? Yes. Check, check, check. Then, and the, so the stuff on the base is doing great, but you're, you know, Fort Hood and you're going to get this tank to, uh, you know, to Korea or to Europe. You know, it, it drives off this like beautiful, you know, protected, cyber protected area, leaves the base gate. And it's like going into the cyber Mad Max Thunderdome, right? Because now you're out in the private sector. Who knows who's taking care of cybersecurity here? It's not the Department of Defense, you know. Who's doing oversight? Who owns and operates it? It's not the federal government, you know, and then it goes on a, you know, a truck, a train, a plane or a ship to get to the, and that whole experience is, you know, Mad Max Thunderdome, right? You know, anyone can go at you. Anyone could do this. And, and look, if I were the Chinese or Russians and I was trying to send a signal to the United States, this is not the war you want to be. in. I think this is really more China than Russia. I would put malware in that critical infrastructure. I would note that's what Typhoon Volt announced yesterday, right? Uh, that the, we've caught the Chinese doing this again. Uh, Microsoft uh, did a, a, somewhat of a big reveal on that. Um, so to me, that's the first chunk, that military mobility. Uh, and, and that's, you could, China could do that, or an adversary could do that before uh, uh, a, uh, you know, during a crisis buildup to say, is this really what you want to do? You know, we can do more. Or would they do it, you know, during a crisis buildup to really hiccup you? And look, they know where everything's moving. Transcom generally runs almost all its tip, its uh, flow planning on unclassified systems. So they must be penetrated. All right. Uh, the second part of cyber resilience is protecting your national critical infrastructure. Uh, your national critical infrastructure is it supports the national security I just mentioned. So it's your, and it also uh, supports your economic uh, productivity kind of important in the United States, and it, and it supports, uh, it, which includes your tools of economic statecraft, how you impose cost on an adversary with economic tools like sanctions or, or uh, currency manipulations, things like that, uh, or, or, um, or uh, blocking off accounts, right? Um, and then third, it provides public health and safety. So we're talking about financial services, power, water, pipelines, um, you know, hospitals. It goes on and on. Food and agriculture. It goes on and on and on. And by the way, that mil that same stuff from mobility, you know, the uh, the transport, the rail ports and, and air aircraft. So you got to protect that. This is what I'm just describing there is almost wholly owned by the private sector or state and local governments, not the federal government. Every, you know, that, that middle chunk um, from soup to nuts. And that's where, you know, we've probably taken the most risk in terms of just allowing, uh, you know, the market, allowing those utilities or those companies to make their own risk management decisions about cybersecurity and resilience, and then, and then the third group of this is disinformation. So you got military mobility, uh, national infrastructure, and and um, and now disinformation. And this is about the fact, uh, and we we see tr snippets of it. Um, around, particularly around elections, where foreign disinformation can easily get into our systems. It, you know, this is usually cyber enabled. It delivers a message, you know, that, oh, 
you know, it, it might deliver a message like President Tsai has you know, resigned, you know, at the beginning of, of, of power strikes. And then you have a whole discussion. The President Tsai really, she's the president of Taiwan, just resigned, you know, uh, after the first set of missile strikes, you know, or Taiwan's capitulated or, you know, who's, you know, who's this war being fought for? Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing or for the American national interest? You know, these kind of like, uh, you know, or anti-Chinese sentiment, you know, you know anti-Chinese American sentiment, which would be wholly inappropriate. You know, all these kind of disinformation um, uh, messages. And look, the Ch- Chinese and Russians aren't stupid. They know how to take a kernel of truth or amplify um, a seed of doubt with this disinformation, how to use our social media to spread it and 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 then sit back and examine it, you know, and, and watch the tomfoolery. Right. So we you have to have resilience across all three of those like lines of effort. And, you know, we don't have the inherent def- cyber defense capacity to handle any one of those three, much, much less those three. And, uh, and so I, I really worry about this. To me, that's that's what cyber resilience is to me, is the protection of those three and, and the and the uh, stability in all three of those areas. Yeah, I want to ask a quick follow up question uh, on that topic. You know, you talked a lot about munitions and ports and uh, critical infrastructure, you know, and, and, and being owned by the private sector and stuff. Um, you know, I think when we when we think about uh, the resiliency of our society and we think of, you know, trip t- typical warfare, uh, obviously, it's very physical and kinetic, you know, as you know, with munitions and physical uh, infrastructure and, and, you know, things like that. Uh, but we're seeing increasingly a case to make uh, cyber essentially a domain of warfare, or at least recognize it as such. And, you know, many argue we're already there. Uh, we've seen authors like you know that published the book uh, "The Fifth Domain," for example. You know, why do you think it's taken us so long to consider cyber or the digital domain part of uh, you know warfare and critical infrastructure, despite its pervasiveness? As you, as you touched on, like everything we do is cyber enabled or software driven, for example. You know, why do you think it's taking us so long to recognize and kind of address this now? Um, well, look, in fact, the Fifth Domain's co-author, Richard Clark, was my boss at the NSC in 1998 to 2001. Um, and he and I, we, we worked in the, the counterterrorism shop who had like a side hustle um, about, uh, you know, about, um, you know, we, we had a side hustle on critical infrastructure and cyber. Like, hey, here's like a 10 percent level of effort. That's what it was in 1998, you know, 10 percent of like two people. Um but, you know, when we looked at it then, we wrote, if you were to read the National Infrastructure Assurance Plan we, read, we wrote in 2000 and read the National Cybersecurity Strategy in 2023, a lot of the issues are the same. A lot of the, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. So I guess when you're asking, why are we like this? Because for 23 years, we've used a voluntary approach. When attack, look, cyber warfare and cyber resilience are different than any other kind of mission area. If you think about undersea warfare, you know, submarines and tank warfare and fighter jets, the government owns all the assets. The government decides how you force generate them. The government decides how you force employ them. The government's in charge. And so if we want to be good at it, you put more, you know, you get the gas tank of the government, you put some more money in for undersea warfare, more submarines come out. That actually doesn't work, but in most areas it works, fighter jets, it works, things like that. And, And out they go. Um, not cyber warfare. Cyber warfare is this unique thing, you know, and not our critical infrastructure. You know, unlike authoritarian regimes, our federal government, as I said earlier, we federal government may own 10 to 15% of what you consider national critical infrastructure. 
By the way, when Dick first said that number, 85% in 1999, I'm confident it was based on no mathematical proof. It's just, it was just his, uh, you know, Kentucky windage guess. Uh, uh, it turns out over like 20 years, it's proven out to be tr- reasonably true that somewhere between 82 and 85% or 82 and 88% uh, this, uh, is not owned by the, um, by the federal government, but either by state and local or, or private sector. But that stuff's owned by them. And look, we, it's a whole different thing. You know, the government can't just put money in the top of the problem and expect something good to come out. Suddenly, the government doesn't have the have access to or control over all the information about that that mission area, right? Because now it's owned by the private sectors. And the government doesn't make the security return on investment decisions. And that's the most important one. So you're asking me why we're here 20... Like, if you told me 23 years ago that a real problem with this uh, Chinese anti... you know. Uh, anti-ship ballistic missile, and we hadn't fixed it after 23 years, I'd say, I hope there are a lot of fired admirals and generals and secretaries of defenses. But in this is a completely different area. After 23 years of the government not being able to cajole the private sector into the right answer on uh, what's the return on investment of secure, for cybersecurity, it's a, uh, it's a disappointment. And look, the proof that I'm right on this is which, if you look back five years ago, you know, Eight, 15, 18 years into this problem, which critical infrastructures were secure? Big banks and financial services. Why were big banks secure? Because big banks were the target of cyber malicious activity for the first 15 years of cyber malicious activity. You know, I forget which of the criminals said, why do you rob a bank? Because that's where the money is. But that's what, you know, why, why do the, and so what did we end up with? We ended up with seven or eight banks in America that spend nearly a billion dollars each on cybersecurity which is more than like 150 countries, each individual bank is spending more than like 150 countries out of 192. So look, where the return on investment was clear, you know, financial services, banking, the investment was made. Where it wasn't clear, the investment wasn't. Now, thank God for ransomware. I'm the only guy that thinks that, but thank God for ransomware because it's teaching everybody, you better take cybersecurity because what ransomware do? Ransomware monetized data. It said, your data has value to you or to someone else. So I'm going to take it and I'm going to monetize it into a ransom payment. And I, I'm going to rans- I'm going to monetize it by either shutting off your business operations so that you can't charge people. I think that's colonial. I mean, the dirty secret on colonial is that they couldn't pump uh, fuel and aviation fuel down to Atlanta Hartsfield. It's that they didn't want to because they couldn't have built them properly. And then the, the second one is I actually attack your field operations. Now you really can't pump. That would be even bigger, right? Or I grab you, the PII of your, your customer database information. We've seen that a lot. That's what happens a lot with the school districts. Um, and then and then fourth, I, I grab, and that's what happens a lot with hospitals too. Um, and then fourth, I grab your, uh, I could grab like incriminating emails you know, but you know, and and you know, the the uh, the back and forth with the general counsel about all the bad bad actor cases you have in your workforce, and, and that's a little bit of Sony. You know, I mean, it wasn't ransomware there, but the, you know, they you know they they intentionally released that to do reputational damage to co- companies. Uh, so my point on this is we monetized that now. So twenty three years later, I think we're on the cusp of giving a crap, and and so I think you're you're starting to see companies. There's this rheostat, and for younger kids, a rheostat is a way to turn it's the volume control knob if you're really confused. All right. So, you know, that rheostat can say security on one end, that means security is high, 
but access is inefficient. Or you can turn it the other way, where security is low, but everyone can move around uh, the network. And uh, and companies have always said it at low security and and high access, although, by the way, low cost. Uh, And now they're having to crank that back up. And if they're not cranking it back up, their cyber insurance companies tell them to crank it back up uh, to get their premiums lower. And so, um, you know, we've really got we're starting to see that change. And you're finally starting to see the government say. Possibly uh, that we need to. um, You're seeing your government say that, hey, we, you know, in the balance of regulation, incentivization and collaboration, we've been overly reliant on collaboration and need to put a little bit more into regulation and maybe for the poor. What I mean by the poor here, like water utilities, they don't have two wood nickels to rub together, you know, uh, some incentivization. I, um, well, I just love the analogy of the two wood nickels rubbing together. I think that's um, hilarious. I did want to touch on one of, one of the things you mentioned early on, um, you were talking about how we, you know, we've sort of been talking about this for 25 years, right? Like we, we've, we've still been seeing some of the same trends, some of the same concerns, things like that. I think identity and access management, right? We're talking about it as zero trust now or IAM or ICAM, but we've been talking about password management, account management, RBAC for years, and we're still talking about it just sort of in a different way. Um, well, I wanted to ask you a little bit more because I wasn't as familiar uh, either. And so anyone that's not familiar with the Cyberspace um, Solarium Commission or CSC, uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the mission, what, what you're working on, maybe what you're working on in the future or uh, or what we might be seeing coming out? Sure. Uh, um, so the, the commission was set up. In the uh, in a, in a national defense, I think the fiscal year eighteen, no nineteen, fiscal year nineteen national defense authorization act, and it was done because, you know, at this point, Senator McCain he's not a big fan of commissions because it's kind of an acknowledgement that we couldn't do our oversight properly in the legislature. We need to get in some outside experts, but you know, he wasn't opposed to them, not a fan of them. But what happened here is you had just a series of events. You know, first and foremost, the Chinese uh, theft of OPM, Office of Personnel Management records, about 24 million military and national security professionals records, including, you know, Senator McCain's, um, you know, would that was pretty frustrating. And just the side that, you know, inside the federal government, we weren't doing even the bare minimum to protect uh, data. Um, the. Uh, Sony, uh, the attack by North Korea on Sony, where, you know, our, our, you know, we wouldn't even attribute it to North Korea for several months. And then and then when we finally did, our punishment was we're going to indict three North Korean army officers. I mean, the next move for those guys is, you know, go to Pyongyang to get an award from Kim Jong Un, you know, and let's be clear, there's no extradition treaty. They're not visiting the U.S. You know, judicial system anytime soon. So c- completely inadequate, slow, and, you know, pathetic response from McCain's point of view. Uh, and then finally, the Russian cyber-enabled information op- uh, operations attack on our on our 2016 election. Um, and and uh, so those things came together. He said, look, we got to do something. So let's do a commission. But he was really smart. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, all I want you to do right away is just tell me a good strategic approach to defending ourselves in cyberspace. Because cyber... We were preventing big cyber threats like Russia and China weren't taking down the electrical power grid. But there's a whole lot of stuff happening in the gray zone before the uh, before we call the use of force where we would go do something about it. 
um, you know, with a military or cyber or espionage capability. And so he says, how do we get that balance correct? You know, where less and less bad stuff's being done because we're getting more and more interconnected. Things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. So let's let's get ourselves better. And, and, and said, and most importantly, I want you to come back with legislative recommendations. Now tell us what to do. And then to help out, he put four serving congressional members. Now they were picked by their leaderships, but he said there'll be four. It was Senator Angus King, uh, independent caucus of the Democrats from Maine, Senator Ben Sass, who was from Nebraska, and in fact brought this language to uh, McCain to, to work on. Representative Jim Langevin, Democrat from Rhode Island, who was by far the most cyber savvy congressional leader we've had in the last two decades, period, full stop, no other discussion. And then Representative Mike Gallagher, a Republican, young Republican from uh, Wisconsin with good, strong national security bona fides. So the four of them were the members. King and Gallagher became the chairman just by dint of, uh, you know, it had to be one from each party, one from each chamber. And uh, and then the other thing uh, McCain did, which was probably borderline not constitutional, was put four um, uh, sitting members of the, of the administration on it. So the deputy secretary of defense, the head of the FBI, the deputy national intelligence and the deputy homeland security. And, and the beauty of that was you had, you know, real, you know, you understood exactly where the government was as you're trying to work through this. And you got inputs from the government like, hey, don't say, you know, don't say banana there, say plantain and things are going to go a lot easier, whatever it was. Um, so, you know, we got together we and we ran fast, right? One year, got the report done um, with recommendations, 82 recommendations initially. It's up about 100 now, 110 now, because uh, we kept working. But 50 legislative recommendations right away. And we did a smart thing. And it, this probably came from a few of us coming from the Hill. We didn't just say, hey, connect A with B with C. We did that in an ab, in actual congressional language, like how you write a bill so that you could hand it to the staffers. And and a few things really benefited us. One, we had members, you know, actual members, you know, senators and representatives. Two, we had um, uh, we knew how to write this legislation. Three, cybersecurity is a bipartisan issue. And the Congress had just asked for this a year before. When your when your commission takes two, three, four years, the people who asked for it have left or no longer, especially at the staff level. So they were ready to receive. So we really got a lot done the first year. And then since every year since we come back and over the last six years, cyber has gone from being like four or five things in the National Defense Authorization Act to 50 plus things every year, 40, 40 to 50 uh, plus. I mean, really significant change in cyber. And we were able to play into that and get a lot of things in. But we've also used four or five other types of vehicles, appropriations bills, standalone bills, uh, um, the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure act, things like that. Um, uh, the, uh, so, you know, from, from my perspective, uh, I, I think that we really, uh, you know, the, the commission was right group of people, those four members, particularly at the right time, looking at the right issue and we're able to get a lot done and, and we're not done. You ask what we're doing now is, you know, as we sunset, you should sunset commissions. Commissions shouldn't go on and on. Some do. It's a mistake. Um, it, but we still had about, we'd written more white papers come up in King, Gallagher, Langevin, and some of our other, we had some other great commissioners, Tom Fanning, the head of Southern Company, Suzanne Spalding, Samantha Ravitch, and Chris Inglis, who became the first national cyber director. They gave us other ideas. And so we've been now working 
we're going through basically each sector, sector by sector, and saying, what do we need to do here to get it right? Uh, we've looked at, you know, other issues like, you know, how, how should sector risk management agencies run? How do you do co- continuity of the economy planning? You know, we've looked at space as a sector already. We've looked at water as a sector already. We're looking at healthcare. We're looking at aviation. And then we're also kind of taking a look at some military things. How do you build better partner capacity? Because we had a ton of military connections that got in all the first year. They've all been making, I think, a good impact. And now as we look at it, there's either corrective guidance we need. So we're looking at, you know, partner capacity building. How do we do it better? How do we make our allies whose infrastructure we need to work on in a in a contingency or conflict? How do we make sure they're secure? And then and then finally, you know, do we need a cyber force? Um, you know, do we you know how long much longer are we experiment with a system with five services generating inconsistent, ill-resourced, uh, differentially paid? You can tell where I'm leaning on this, you know, or do we shift to a cyber force? Um, you know, and so uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get there pretty soon. So that's where we're at. We're working a lot of these issues and we still get a lot of support. Chris Inglis has rejoined us. He, you know, he retired as national cyber director after about 18 months or 20 months and he came back. Most of my original staff have gone out. They work at National Cyber Director. They work at CISA. They work on the Hill. A few are in the private sector, but you know we're in a good position to continue to influence things. And you hire in new uh, young staff to kind of get them working it and get it going. Because we try to be like a a system of getting people in who can get the experience of executive branch and legislative quickly, and then be a value to the government or the legislative branch or private sector uh, going forward. Yeah, you touched on so many great things there and you kind of led, uh, you know, you touched on a lot of topics that, uh, you know, made it into the national cyber strategy. And I think it's kind of a testament to what you all did, uh, because those themes and recommendations and topics are still being discussed in some of the most prominent, you know, uh, cyber dialogue underway right now in government. Uh, it does lead me into my next question to you. Uh, I recently saw some comments from you uh, discussing, you know, how cloud service providers are kind of, uh, you know, currently still not designated as critical infrastructure, uh, despite their pervasiveness, you use, you know, widely by obviously private sector, but also uh, intelligence community, Department of Defense, where I've done a lot of cloud security work myself over the last several years. Um, and those comments are really similar to, uh, you know, comments we've seen some from the office of the National Cyber Director, the acting uh, uh, cyber director, I should say. Uh, I'm curious, you know, given the pervasiveness of cloud service providers, and, you know, how reliant we are on them for everything in society at this point, basically, when you look at, uh, you know, private and public sector, you know, how, do, how have they avoided, you know, being designated as critical infrastructure? And is that happenstance or is that uh, intentional? You know, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, there's a, f- a few few thoughts before I go right into the cloud one. First, I do want to say that I'm I'm happy that the National Cyber Security Strategy looks a little bit like the our March 20 report. I, I would acknowledge that the two lead writers, Harry Kreska and, and Matt Farron, were both on our staff and went over to the NCD. So at a minimum, the tone and tenor would have been the same, you know, because their writing style came through in both documents. Um, but also it was run, you know, Rob Kanaki did the oversight of it, who, you know, the other fifth domain actor and uh, someone who I think is, was very consistent with our thinking on the commission. So I, again, no surprises there. I, I also want to comment on, you said, acting cyber, uh, national cyber director at Campbell Walden. The administration has aired, has done a lot of great things. They, they've 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 aired a couple times. One of them was being very slow to appoint a national cyber director, and it really took, you know, Senator King and Representative Gallagher, really Senator King, leaning into them, you know, saying things repeatedly publicly at press events to cause the press to finally ask the president what's going on, and the president immediately 
nominated Chris Inglis. Like, and, and at the same time, King was communicating Chris Inglis, Chris Inglis, Chris Inglis to the administration, and, and he got nominated. And, and the government was so much better for it. They're making the same mistake again now at Kemba Walden. She is supremely qualified for this job. Most importantly, she's been the, she was the, the principal deputy for 15 months or 12 months under Chris. Uh, she shepherded the national cybersecurity strategy through. She's written the implementation plan. She's been on the Hill. The Hill likes her. Bipartisan likes her. It is obvious she's right. She has a good mix of government and private sector. She is obviously the right candidate. And the longer they wait on this, the worse, you know, the, the more challenging they make, you know, the country's job of implementing the national cybersecurity strategy. So, you know, they've, they've done a ton of great things at the NSC, the NCD, CISA, NSA, all the acronyms have done great. But the White House PPO, another acronym, the personnel office, is dorking this up. And you know, I, I think English told them he was retiring back in November, December of last year. So I think they've had six plus months to not screw this up, but they've screwed it up. They need to nominate her now. I, You can't guarantee anything. I would be shocked if it took a day over two months to get her through committee and through the full house. She'd be that well-received as a nominee. And, and the administration um, you know, handicaps itself uh, with this short-sighted thinking. Okay, cloud service provider. Um, why aren't they critical infrastructure? Well, two reasons. One, they didn't exist the last time we did this, right? Which is 2013 with the uh, PPD 21. Um, and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, this is one of the many, 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 many flaws of not updating PPD 21 every two to three years. And instead it's been 10 years. Just think about this. This is a document about how we how we handle emerging technology and and national national security issues inside uh, the administration. We'll update that every ten years, right? I mean, no, it's completely illogical. They should be updated every two or three years. So the number one reason is they weren't listed. The number two reason is they would prefer that you didn't exactly accumulate them together in a sector that would look like a utility that might eventually involve regulation. Like, I'm going to assume for a moment that Microsoft, Amazon, and Google's government affairs people spend most of their time all day, like, undermining the other two. Um, why not? Uh, but um, if you were to say the word regulation, you would suddenly see, like, the three of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I mean, throw Oracle in. Now you got four horsemen of the apocalypse charging at you in unison, locked arms to say, we shall not be regulated, right? So, um you know, so you're asking me why? I'll give you two reasons. One, they didn't exist when we last thought about it. Two, they'd prefer you didn't, and it turns out they're powerful. So are they going to be regulated? I think so. It, we may not use the word regulation, but we're headed. They are a utility. Look, some of the best advice you can get if you're a small or medium-sized business is find yourself an, MSSP, an MSP or a CSP uh, or a cybersecurity as a service you know, provider to reduce your costs and increase your security. Now, look, that doesn't obviate you as a small, medium-sized business from doing good cyber hygiene and following all the rules and doing everything you're told, but it, it sure prevents this cybersecurity workforce issue from impacting you because you're buying into a into someone who has the workforce they need. Um, it gives you access to talent management, incident response management. Um, in theory, it gives you access to you know a good patching system uh, where if you select the right you know, the right level of auto, auto, uh, automated delivery. 
you'll be in a better position. I really think it can it help you. Well, if we're going to say the way to get more secure for lots of companies and lots of smaller utilities is to get into these clouds, then we better make darn sure that that rheostat in the cloud is set. Now, look, that rheostat can move. If you're like, if you're, you know, a defense industrial base company building, you know, the only black powder, you know, factory in America, you better have pretty damn high cybersecurity, right? So that you don't get, you know, uh, uh, malware in your in your machine tooling, right? The vast majority of which is is automated now on systems. If you're a public utility, maybe you're at the 60% mark. If you're VIX dry cleaner, you can be at 10%. But we have to have these standards. What's the floor for what you do? And that's going to, you know, if you want to call them standards or regulation, we need them. I think if these four big ones, uh, bigs, were, were really it's three three or four, depending on how you count them, um, you know, big cloud service providers were to get together and say, here's the floor we're going to set for these types of services consistent with the the CRG stuff, the CISAs, like, recommendations for maturity and scalability on industry and a recognition of PPG 21. What's a, you know, what is a national program structure? They could set something up, you know, in cahoots with CISA probably, who's the, you know, if they're anywhere, they're in the IT sector, which is um, the sector risk management agency CISA. So they could work with CISA, not as a regulator, but to like set a standard that they adhere to, do some kind of third party checks to prove it. I mean, all those companies own like the biggest third-party check companies. You could, I mean, I think Google's got Mandiant. I mean, they each, they can work, they can figure this out. Um, you know, you could do that, and you could really have a high, uh, an improved cybersecurity nationwide. That's my like future dream, right? Where the and, and we could do this without kind of formal regulation, most likely. Um, we could do it by an agreement on cybersecurity standards you know, run through probably a joint, you know, run and in, in in maybe mo- third party monitored by a, uh, a joint, uh, a joint industry government organization funded by both that looks at them and, and studies the security, just studies those decisions they're making, examines incoming threats, says, hey, we better change, tweak the rheostat 0.1 degrees based on this, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I really think that's the solution. I, I hope we can get there. Um, if not, I think eventually the government's going to like, you know, put on the, uh, the bare knuckle, uh, gloves and, and, uh, and we're going to have a, we're going to have some regulation. And I don't think that's good for a real regulation with the capital R, you know, not comfortable, uh, regulation. And, and I, I just think we could probably get there through this kind of mix of what I would, that is a true mix I described of regulation, incentivization and collaboration, you know, to get you right. Yeah, I like that answer. And, you know, you led right into my next question for you is, uh, you know, earlier you touched touched on, you made a comment about being 23 years later, and we're finally starting to get our act together to some extent on certain topics. Um, You know, obviously, CISA recently released their Secure by Design, Secure by Default guidance for software suppliers. Um, And I wrote an article talking about how this concept of, you know, building security inverse, bolting it on had been around since the WEAR report over 50 years ago now. Um, You know, in that national cyber strategy, it talks about shifting market forces and the concept of software liability and safe harbor too on the flip side uh you know i'm curious like it kind of builds on your your, your previous comment about regulation you know uh, how do you think this this shift of market forces is likely to play out and then if it does you know what would safe harbor look like in that scenario too you know so f- i agree with you by the way you can't go all the way back to where you go back to the marsh report about you know marsh commission about 30 
you know, 33 years ago as well. I mean, we've talked about this issue that is very expensive to um, to add this on later. Um, and uh, and, uh, um, you know, building security and, you know, from the ground up makes sense. Um, uh, and, and it hasn't always had this terminology. I mean, we're good at this, like things like zero trust, secure by design. You know, it, they're redescribing something that we thought about years before. Um, but, you know, I, I think that um, uh, the, the other issue you're getting at is kind of a little bit of the, the liability involved in this, which is um, I'll get right into that and say, look, I think it was helpful at the beginning of software development to kind of because it was entrepreneurial, it was beginning to let things move around and not treat them like a kid's toy where, you know, hey, if you have a break off piece of this size, you can't, you know, you can't do that. And if you do, we'll sue you. And 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 if you do, if it turns out that you built it to a poor enough a quality that a child swallowed it, that family can sue you, that kind of thing. I, I think we're getting to that point in software now where you are liable. These this industry has been around long enough. It's reached that maturity that it needs to be treated like industry. And it needs to be treated, you know, when you think about big things like utilities and they have to meet standards. And if they don't meet those standards, they have to be liable. And I think what we're getting at now is, look, you know, we wrote it uh, slightly. I don't want to say more gracefully, but more, you know, we, we, we were much in the, in the slavery commission. We were very explicitly about, look, if you're if you're continuing to support a software, you're putting out changes to it. You have to continue to patch it. And if you know about a vulnerability and you don't patch it and that vulnerability gets exploited, someone can sue you. And there is a lot of software like that now where as it as it's as a new version is released by that same company, they begin to slow down, slant, stop patching vulnerabilities. And that's not acceptable. You know, that's just not acceptable. You have to, um, in my mind, you have to. Uh, you know, you have to be held accountable for that now. Now, this is a much broader, they imply a much broader level of accountability in the national cybersecurity strategy. I'm not sure they're wrong. I think we were trying to kind of get that first, like, foot in the door. And I'll just tell you, we had no success. So, I mean, there were no bites on that. And I, in fact, there's a Tim Starks from the Washington Post, like, comes back to me, uh, like, hey, uh, which one of these, um, and, and uh, I think Eric Geller did this at Politico too, when he was at Politico, you know, they, which one of these, uh, these ones that are red that are, you know, you think have no chance of getting done, you know, why is that? And the one on this was always easy. It's because industry blocks this one pretty quickly, you know, um, and they have enough friends in Congress who, who are concerned about opening up liability chains. Yeah, that's a um, it, it's a really interesting topic. And I imagine even in the next couple of years, we'll probably see, I would think, more and more information coming out around that, too. Um, I am curious I for my last question for you, because I wanted to take a little bit of a different angle, um, because I see a lot of from legislation and the executive order and things that we've been talking about. There's a lot of technical information in there. There's a lot about zero trust software supply chain security, thing, things that like that, right? I'm talking about S-bombs a lot, but I don't see a ton of legislature or really anything in the executive order around the human element. How do we how do we protect our users? And and not even just that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot out there right now about the cybersecurity workforce. 
you know, whether that's bringing people in or people leaving because of burnout or frustration or, uh, you know, sort of name your name, your item. But I'm curious if you think that we will ever see anything around that in, in either an executive order or, or from some other legislature legislature, or if you foresee anyone else sort of looking into this um, in other ways as well. Good. So let me tackle that two ways. First, um, and you're absolutely right. This is probably one of the, you know, when we look at our, you know, we had six lines of effort, workforce was in one of them. And um, when I look at my lines of effort, we did great on the department. This is the commission. We did great on like strengthening DOD. We did pretty good on um, reorganizing the government. Um, we did pretty good on the international collaboration and uh, and norms by getting the uh, uh, the Cyber Diplomacy Act passed and the, and the ambassador Fick, the, the cyber leader at State Department. And, but we did and we did medium to poor on resilience. I've talked about the things that are still remaining there. But in the ecosystem, and we did okay on the on the building partner, on the, on the public private collaboration, again, kind of a low, you know, a C or, you know, C or D. The place where we had an F was on the cyber ecosystem. Part of it was that liability issue we just brought up was in there. But another one, you know, the, the workforce is in there, as is the um, as is this last one, which is we, I think we need a, a cyber victim. We've been pushing some legislation. We're not getting anywhere on it right now. We're going to try again this year on a cyber victim assistance center. One of the problems we have right now is when, like, Aunt Betty or Uncle Fred, you know, gets tricked by the Nigerian prince and the 10,000 bucks, you know, heading the other way. It's, it's it, you know, when he's subjected to some kind of uh, cyber or information operations crime like this, there's no, look, he's not going to get, re- she or he's not going to get restitution. But they sometimes need help on how to prevent further loss, like your, 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 uh, your PII has been, your personal identification information has been, um, has been compromised. They, um, they might be able to get some money back, uh, highly unlikely. And, and how do you prevent this from happening again? We don't have that. We need a cyber victim assistance center. And the police stations, can't, you know, there's 10, you know, eight, 10,000, whatever it is, law enforcement uh, operations around the United States. They don't have this kind of cyber crime victim assistance. Some of the very big ones do, like New York City or something. But then again, they have so many, like, complainants coming into them. They're over, overwhelmed as well. So we want to set something up with an NGO. We've had this problem before in the United States with missing and exploited children. And we set up a cyber victim, a missing and exploited children center at Department of Justice that then helps establish this non-government organization that kind of runs the broader issue and helps in locations, things like that. To me, that's the great model. We're going to try to push something like that through again. We need that. That'll help. That's a that's a part of what you're talking about. Now, on the workforce, there, there have been a lot, has been a lot of legislation. It tends to be about the federal cybersecurity workforce. But you're absolutely right, because let's describe this current situation. I don't know how many jobs are free. I know there's this heat map, you know, that tells you 752,000. Chris English used to always like give an exact number. I, I, I knew one thing, that number was wrong. I didn't know what the right number was. But, and it's not jamming on him. But, but what wasn't wrong was the idea that about one third of the jobs were, were free. Well, here's the problem. If you're running an organization, and here's the trick on cybersecurity, uh, you know, is that cybersecurity is the one organization where you really need, especially inside the federal government, to be retrained every 18 or 24 months. You need to go back for a little bit. So if you're at two thirds manning all the time and uh, uh, everyone's working harder, everyone's pretty unhappy. And, and then finally, no one's going to that specialized, you know, recurring, persistent training you need. So you end up with a, uh, 
underperforming, unhappy, poorly trained workforce. And that is not where we need to be. That does not describe excellence, right? So you've really got to get at this. So I, I was pushing hard on the federal government. We've done two white papers here. We put forward a bunch of legislation. Uh, Kemba's team is actually working on a national cybersecurity workforce strategy. Should be out the next couple months. They took it well beyond what I was thinking. And, you know, it's a, it's a risk because if they just concentrated on federal, I think they could get a lot done. But they're opening the aperture. They're looking at the national cyber workforce, how we educate and train, how you improve the cyber hygiene, for lack of better terminology, or personal data care, how you, you private, you know, uh, or data care, you know, if you want to use Ron Gula's terminology, which is probably a little better. Um, how do you do that? Uh, those things that you're going to see that from this strategy coming out. Now, look, those last two I mentioned, the non-federal ones, the federal government can't control everything. They're a they're a, uh, a medium to small size player in those. Whereas in the federal workforce, they're a very large, i.e. the only player, right? You know, so, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm looking forward to their strategy coming out. It's, in other words, it's got, it's a, it's a little more um, visionary than I would have done. Uh, but that's okay. As long as they still block and tack on the stuff they can get done in, the, uh, in all the different areas, that'll be good. But that's how we have to address it. So you're about to see a little more movement on this, particularly on the federal, but even in some of the other areas, as we try to, as we try to work down this problem. And I think the number one thing we can do to lower stress on the cybersecurity workforce is to have a properly sized cybersecurity workforce. Yeah, I think that's a great, it's a great point, right? To have have the right people in place to reduce uh, burnout, because that's that's one of the things that I think we were certainly starting to see and have seen. There's a lot of great research and information out there about burnout in the industry, but I think that's one of those things we'll con- continue to see people sort of roll out uh, as uh, cybersecurity continues to be a somewhat stressful and continuous learning environment for people. Well, I I wanted to say a huge thank you for joining us today. I can't say how much I've already learned from our conversation. I wish we could talk to you for like five hours because I feel like we really could. Um, we covered everything from you know national cyber strategy to um, talking about uh, defense and operations and everything, and critical infrastructure and everything in between. So um, a huge thank you, Mark, for uh, for joining us today. Well, thank you, uh, Chris and Nikki. Thank you very much for, for having me. It was a real pleasure. And, uh, and I, you know, I've listened to your podcast. A bunch of my friends have been on your show before, and, and I, I think you really get it, the, the challenging issues we're facing. So, um, you know, luckily you're being supported by ransomware as well. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll all, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep the focus on this issue over the next, uh, over the next few years. And hopefully you'll see some, the, the improvements that I alluded to and that you've asked about, uh, during this, uh, discussion. Awesome. Thanks again, Mark. And, uh, and that's going to take us out for this week. We'll see everybody next week. Thank you.